0: Anybody else who is watching at home is going to be with me and those of you in the room. Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1 today. So I stand here today. You stand here today watching online. You are with us today as we stand upon the conviction that Jesus Christ is alive. We are the people who make that our proclamation, that Jesus Christ is alive. He is not just a historical figure. He was not just a prophet or teacher who lived in one specific time, and then that was it. We stand upon the conviction that Jesus Christ is alive, and we make that our proclamation always, not just on Easter Sunday. But today, it always just feels extra special as we do that. And as we do that, we join in with hundreds of millions of brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world today, and everybody in all different tribes, tongues, language, nations are coming together today, brothers and sisters in Christ who make that their proclamation as well, that Jesus Christ is alive and that he is Lord. And so we join in our songs with them today. We join in our faith with them today. We really are part of something quite incredible this morning as we do that, as we join our faith together with those who are all over the place. And so as we do that, let's take a look at our text today. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're just going to look at a couple of verses today, but these verses are full, I'm just warning you. So if you're going to read two verses and say, Chris will be super short today, you couldn't be more wrong. There's so much good stuff in here this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So that's it today, just a couple of verses, but man, there's a lot of good stuff in there. So this book is 1 Peter that we're in, and that's the Apostle Peter we're talking about. So the Apostle Peter, more than most of us, understands what the resurrection's all about right? Because he was there. He was actually there to witness it. And so Peter had been with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. He had been with Jesus since the beginning. For about three years, Jesus is traveling the countryside, teaching the good news about the kingdom of God, showing people who God is, talking about the way of salvation. He is performing miracles. He is driving out demons. He is raising the dead. He is healing the sick. Uh, He is, all these incredible things happening in Jesus' life. Peter is face-to-face through all of it. And I always find the disciples encouraging because they didn't really get it, and that makes me feel better when I don't understand things. And so the disciples were there. They were there all the time. They even heard Jesus say specifically, guys, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem. There are evil men who are going to grab a hold of me. I'm going to die, and on the third day, I'm going to be raised again. And yet when Good Friday happens, they're all like, what's going on? Like they just missed it entirely, even though he told them specifically what was about to happen. And so I imagine in Peter's life and the apostles' life, like Thursday night is a bad night when Jesus gets arrested. Friday is so much worse when Jesus is dead. And then Saturday, it's just like, how do you pick up the shattered pieces of of what you've lost, right? You had all your hope that Jesus was the Messiah, and on Saturday you're sitting there and it's all done and it's all over, and and you don't know uh, what the next day is going to hold, and yet then Sunday happens, and so the women go to the tomb, and they are there in order to take care of the dead body. They weren't expecting anything else; they were expecting a dead body to be there, and so they go with their spices, and they used to go and they would anoint the Because it would keep it from smelling too bad and it would keep it preserved a little while longer. So they are going to take care of the dead body of Jesus Christ. And as the women arrive at the tomb, there's an angel there and he has one of the greatest lines in all of scripture. He says, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And so the women go. Jesus tells them to go, or the angel tells them to go, depending on which gospel it is, and they go, and they are given this task. The women are the first ones to proclaim the gospel that Jesus Christ is alive. And they come back to the disciples, and the disciples honestly don't believe it. And in some ways, you can't blame them, although you would think something would have triggered of like, hey, Jesus did say that was going to happen. But we're not always the smartest as human beings. And so Peter and John run to the tomb, and it is indeed empty. Jesus is not there. He is risen. He's alive. So when Peter talks about the resurrection, this is a guy who knows what he's talking about. This is a guy who was there front and center at zero hour as it was happening. And the resurrection changes Peter's life dramatically. Peter, who had been kind of a little bit lippy, a little bit arrogant, wasn't always listening to Jesus, at times trying to tell Jesus what he should do. And then when Jesus gets arrested, Peter, who just bailed entirely, I don't even know him, to save his own skin. The resurrection changed everything for Peter. It transformed him into a completely different person. And it does for us as well. And so when Peter gives us our verses today as inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's coming from somebody who knows what he's talking about. So in these couple of verses, again, just a few short words, but there's a few very big ideas, and we're just going to pull those big ideas out of the text today. So first of all, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. That's where we start. That's where the gospel starts, in his great mercy. Everything that has come to us has come because of his great mercy. So think about in your life right now, in the room or online, think about the most merciful person that you know in real life. Think about that person in your family or in your friendship circle or in your church maybe. Um, You're all thinking about me obviously, but feel free to think about somebody else. Think about the most merciful person that you know. That person who just forgives really easily and and doesn't hold a grudge and is compassionate and is kind. Think about the most most merciful person that you know. And those are people who reflect something of the image of God to us. They reflect some of God's mercy to us. God gifts them to do that. It's, It's important. We want to be more like those people. But however merciful the most merciful person in your life is, of course, God's mercy is infinitely greater and perfected beyond that time's infinity that God's mercy is so much greater. Scripture actually has a bit of a hard time defining God's mercy for us, and so Scripture gives us these pictures from time to time, these metaphors to try and help us understand how great that mercy really is, that we who are sinners, and by sinners I mean we who have chosen to go our own way, we've chosen to break God's commandments, we've chosen the selfish path, we've chosen the rebellious way, God loves and forgives us anyway, In his great mercy. And so scripture gives us some pictures to help us understand this. One of them is the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18. You can go read this on your own later. I'm not going to dig into all of it. But in this parable, it talks about there is a king, there is a master, who is settling his accounts with his servants, and there is a servant who owes him 10,000 talents. Now, I've read different scholars trying to define what 10,000 talents would be worth today, and I've heard anywhere from 1 to 7 billion, with a B, dollars. So this servant, I don't know what he did. I don't know how you possibly lose that much money. And it's a, it's a story, obviously. It's not real life. But this servant has found himself in a place where through his bad choices and his bad management, he owes his master billions and billions of dollars. And he's just a servant. There is no possible way That he's going to be able to pay this back it is an impossibility and so the king in the name of justice says all right well you're going to be sold and your wife and children are going to be sold and everything you have is going to be sold you are going to be uh put in this place until you can pay me back like this is something that you need to make right and the king is not wrong in saying that. That's fair, right? The master is the one who's out the money, and the servant is the one who lost the money. And so the servant should have to deal with that. But it's, still, it's an impossible debt. Like, he's basically saying, life sentence for you. This is never going to get better because you will never be able to pay back these billions and billions of dollars. And so the servant falls on his knees before the king and says, please have mercy on me, and I will pay you back. Now, he's, he's not going to, right? It's not possible. He's not going to be able to pay him back. But please have mercy on me. And it says that the master was so moved by the pleas of his servant that he forgives the entire debt. Not like, let's make a payment plan or let's figure out how I can get at least some pennies off the dollar. Not, hey, what can you do to, to kind of make this right? Just free and clear, 100%, you are not going to owe me a thing forever, that billion-dollar debt that you were never going to repay anyway, you don't have to repay a penny of it. Wiped clean, that is great mercy. And so the servant does not do well from there, and you can go read that story on your own. Another picture scripture gives us comes from the psalmist. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So far has he removed our sins from us. And again, we are the transgressors. We are the ones who made that choice to do whatever we did. We are the ones who are sinners. We are the ones who are selfish. So we did those things, and by justice we deserve whatever the consequences of those things are. But he has removed that from us, and has put it as far away as east is from west. There's a little poetry in there to help us understand it, because of course, how far apart are east and west? Well, east and west don't ever touch. They are opposite directions. You can't go west far enough and finally run into east. It just It's an impossibility. It's saying he's removed our sin from us to the place where it doesn't touch us anymore. That's how far away our sin has been removed. Another picture comes from the prophet Micah. Micah 7, verse 19. You will again have compassion on us. The Lord will have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea that it's just if you've ever dropped something in the water i once was on a camping trip with some friends and uh, and this was like perfect it wasn't hap- it wasn't a great thing that happened but a guy had his phone in his pocket and he leaned over the boat to look at something and it just went glug glug, it just slipped right out and we watched it slowly swirl down and we were in like 80 feet of water and it just at a point you just couldn't see it anymore and it's like well that's just gone now from your life right we're not getting scuba gear and trying to find it in this huge lake in 80 feet of water that's just gone and that's the picture that God, God takes our sin and it's like he throws it into the depths of the sea. You're not seeing it anymore it's gone and you don't have to worry about it anymore. It is down at the bottom of the sea. So these metaphors come to help us understand what we're dealing with here. They help us understand what is God's great mercy like? It's like a king who wiped out a multi-billion dollar debt. It's like trying to take something and move it as far away as east is from west. It's like he's taken all the bad stuff we did and thrown it to the bottom of the ocean, never to be seen again. That's his great mercy. And the word of God says in the book of Titus, this is one of those just gospel in a nutshell verses, Titus 3 verse 5, he saved us. He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us because he is merciful. That's why we're here. That's why we're forgiven. That's why the cross and resurrection lead to our salvation, because of his great mercy. The gospel starts there. So that's where this all begins. That's big idea number one. The praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. His great mercy is the motivator and the executor of everything he has done in the cross and in the resurrection. His mercy is at the root of all of it, and it's that mercy that saves us. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. He has given us new birth. And that's a picture that the New Testament uses for those of us who follow after Jesus. And when someone's pregnant, when new birth is coming, if you've had your own kids or if you've been around people who've had kids, you remember that there's something exciting. There's something fresh. There's something new. New, new life is happening pastor sarah in our church is pregnant i don't know if you knew that because it's everywhere we talk about it all the time but that's what happens with new birth you talk about it all the time it's always exciting and every time we see sarah you want to know how is she doing and oh the baby's kicking and that's amazing and how far along and when do you find out what gender you're having and how much longer till you get to actually meet that little one it's so exciting new birth is always exciting And Jesus said that when we follow him, when we experience this forgiveness, when we experience this mercy, it is that profound a change that comes into our life. There was a time when we were all in our mother's womb and then life started. We were born, right? Boom life has begun. Breath entered our body. We wailed for the first time. Our hearts were beating like we were were alive, fully alive, separate from our mothers. The life that we were meant to live on earth began. And I, I mean, we do believe life starts earlier. But in terms of where we are actually living out our lives, it begins there. And what happens to us when we receive this great mercy is that profound a change. Jesus says in John 3 verse 3, very truly I tell you no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. No one sees heaven unless they're born again. And that's where we get the term, born again Christian. And Jesus in this chapter is talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus has a hard time understanding born again. What does that mean? That's a, you know, it's, it's familiar to us if you've been around church for a while, but if someone who you didn't know very well was talking in metaphors like that, you would think that was a little strange. Nicodemus says, I've been born. What does it mean to be born again? And Jesus says, no, you have been born in the natural. You need to be born again of the Spirit. That when you receive the mercy of the Lord, when you acknowledge, I'm a sinner who needs mercy I need my sins forgiven I'm a sinner in needs of saving and I can't save myself when we have that revelation that Jesus is the savior who can save us that his great mercy is the thing that saves us and we say Lord forgive me of my sins I need that forgiveness I need that mercy and I will follow you as Lord when that happens it leads to a change in our lives so profound that it's like life starting over again And as we move forward, as we meet Jesus, and as we respond, before Jesus, I'm a sinner. I am lost in my sin. I am hopeless in my sin. Before Jesus, I am living for myself. I am living selfishly. I'm doing whatever I want to do. Before Jesus, I am living entirely in the grip of that. But when I say yes to Jesus, now everything changes. Now he's Lord. And now my whole life is framed after him. I am living my life for him, with him as Lord. That's new birth. And for some of us, we remember a moment where that happened. And and that's my story. At 18 years old, there was a moment where it was like my life had a before Jesus and an after Jesus, right? There was my sinful life and there was my new birth life. My wife doesn't have a specific moment. She just had a time where she began to read the Bible and start attending a church. And somewhere along the way, she came to faith in Christ. She can't point to a specific time. Some of you, it happened when you were five years old and you don't remember kind of a before and after. And that's okay as well. There's no right way or wrong way that it happens. But the point is that when we are born, we are born in our sin and we live out our sin. When we come to Jesus, life starts over at that point. We are now followers of Christ. Our life has a before and an after. Whether it's a specific moment or more of a season doesn't matter. That we are living our lives differently from now on. Our lives are realigned to Jesus Christ as Lord. So our God, in his great mercy, has given us a new birth into a living hope. Into a living hope. And hope is a word, it gets used in lots of different ways, and a lot of the ways we use it, uh, even culturally when we talk about hope, is that it doesn't really mean what the Bible is getting at when the Bible talks about hope. We often use the word hope when we say, like, I hope so, and it's not really an overly faith-filled word, it's more of a, like, oh, I hope it works out, and it's, it's kind of a wimpy word, it's kind of a wussy word, it's like, are things going to get better? Oh, I don't know, I hope so. It's like, well, it doesn't sound very hopeful when you say it that way, and that's not really what the word is getting at. Here is a biblical definition. This is biblical hope. Biblical hope is an eager and confident expectation. Not a Hail Mary, not a if it works out, not a hey, if things break my way. It's an eager and a confident expectation. It's to engage God in his word and believe that those things are actually coming to pass. Not just in a way of like, well, I've read the Bible, hope I make it to heaven. It's no, I eagerly and confidently expect that I'm going to be there because of what he has done. It's not a wussy word. It's an incredibly powerful word. When we use the word hope in the biblical sense, that's an incredibly powerful word where we say not just if God wills it or not just if it's something that happens to work out the way I'm hoping it'll work out. It's like, no, I I read the word. I do my best to understand the word. I trust the word, and I eagerly and confidently expect he will be true to his word with eagerness and confidence not hope so but i eagerly and confidently expect this proverbs 13:12 says this hope deferred hope put off hope delayed makes the heart sick but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life proverbs 13:12 and and we live that right that's part of what's hard about living in this life that we live in is that hope does get deferred Right? We hope for something and it doesn't happen or it doesn't happen the way that we thought or it doesn't happen as quickly as we thought. And so hope does get deferred at time and who has not felt that heart sickness? Right? That's part of living life in this in-between state between the fullness of heaven and the fullness of the earth that we are walking on is that not everything always goes the way we want it to go and not everything happens in the timing of how it's going to happen. Right, We got some bummer news on Thursday as it relates to Ontario and a shutdown. It's like, ah, we, we were doing good and then we're not doing good and then we're doing good again and it's a bit of a seesaw. It's like hope deferred. Oh, I thought we were getting through this and we're just not there yet. Oh. The heart gets sick when that happens. Or I really felt God put in my heart that something was going to happen and it's not happening yet. And I've been praying for years and years. There's a loved one I've been praying for to come to know the Lord and that's not happening. And I'm just holding on and I'm waiting, hope deferred. And we we all know what that heart sickness feels like because it just feels like, oh, it just gets kicked down the road again and, and it's not happening. And Lord, your word says this and why am I not seeing it? And you've promised this and why am I not seeing that? And yet, the promise for those of us who follow after Jesus is that we have a living hope. We have a living hope. And I I learn in my life, I continue to learn this lesson, that so often my hope level is directly correlated to the circumstances of my life. And when things are going well, I've got lots of hope. And when things are delayed or struggling, I, I have a harder time holding on to hope. And yet there's a picture given in the resurrection where it's like our hope is not dependent on anything in our lives that are circumstantial because Jesus is alive all the time. And our hope is there all the time. And so as we trust in him, we have a living hope because we have a living savior, because he's alive. And all throughout human history, people have put their hope in other heroes and in other philosophers and even other religious leaders, and they all died. And when those people die, then hope in them has to die as well because they're dead. And they can't save you anymore. They can't deliver your nation. They can't lead in the way that you want. But that's what's different about us is that our Savior lives. And because he lives, our hope is alive. Because he lives, we can know him, not just know about him. We can know him personally. Because he lives, we can hear his voice. We can know his presence. We can feel the leading of the Holy Spirit because he is alive. I have wonderful people in my life who are followers of Jesus who have gone to be with the Lord already. They have passed away. And and I can't have that with them in the same way like I have with Jesus. Even though we trust we will see them again, Jesus we encounter now. Jesus is alive and gives us his Holy Spirit now. We can experience him now. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, life is worth the living just because he lives. So in his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead and that's where like the resurrection all bets are off the game changes entirely from this point on right everything is different after this event in world history many years ago i got to hear tony campolo preach and tony has a famous sermon uh and you probably will know this line even if you haven't heard the sermon but the sermon's called it's friday but sunday's coming It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And he talks about on Friday, on Good Friday, hope seems deferred, right? Everything is falling apart. Jesus was the Messiah. They fully believed he was the Messiah. His disciples were looking to him as the Messiah. They were confessing that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Friday, everything falls apart and the one that they were putting all their hope in he's coming to set us free he's coming to be the king he's coming to set up the kingdom and he's dead on a cross and in a tomb by friday night and saturday like we don't we don't in our tradition other traditions of the church put a lot of emphasis on holy saturday we don't really a lot of more contemporary churches don't but that in between time between good friday and sunday morning where where hope really like you have to wake up that morning as the disciples and you have to make sense of your life because everything that you thought just in your view, just got turned upside down. You don't understand what's coming. You don't know about the fullness of Sunday that's on its way. But there is a time in life where it feels like Friday. There's a time in life when hope is deferred. There's a time in life when things are not going well. There's a time in life when it's not panning out the way that we thought it would pan out. There's a time of disappointment, and there's a time of weeping, and there's a time of grieving, and there's a time of lament. There's a time for Friday. Friday is a day of suffering. Friday is a day of struggle. But our story, our testimony, is that it's Friday sometimes, but on Friday we know that Sunday is still coming. Easter Sunday is still coming. For us, resurrection is always the end of the story. Whatever we are going through, and we won't taste the fullness of that until we get to heaven, but one way or another, resurrection is always the end of the story. God always wins. Light always wins. Life always wins. Because Jesus is the Lord of life, and the grave couldn't hold him in. And so there's a scripture verse I bring up every Easter. I bring it up lots of other times as well. It's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Acts 2.24. This is Peter, our author today, preaching the first gospel sermon of the first church service, Acts 2.24. It says that God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And I just love the poetry of that line. I love the power of that line, that Satan is evil and Satan is the tempter and we are sinners in our nature and so we are happy to partner with him in that stuff. But Satan's great snare is sin, but his end game is death. And the wages of sin is death. So if Satan traps us in sinfulness, then death is our end. That's just the way that that he's got it. And so that is the way the world was, that the wages of sin is death. And so we sin, and so we are are worthy of death. That's how that story would end. And for Satan, that was his final trump card. That was the best thing he had to play, because even the most righteous people on earth in the Old Testament, David and Abraham and others, uh, they died eventually. And so no matter what good they were doing for God, no matter what good they were doing for God's people, death was the end with all of its finality that those people could still be taken off the earth and they could stop having an influence on the earth. And so Satan's great card, his final weapon was always death. Death was the final thing, and, and there was nothing that could be done about that. It, just everybody died, and that was just the end of that story. But there's not an end to the story like that when God's the one actually writing the story. And if, if death was Satan's best card, God had a better card. God just had a better card called resurrection. So years ago, I was at a men's retreat. I pastored at the Pentecostal Church in Amherstburg, and... Once a year, we would go up to Chesley Lake, which is up in the Bruce Peninsula. Some of you would know the camp. It's a Mennonite camp, actually. But it has a little nine-hole golf course there and cabins and stuff. And so there was a men's retreat where a bunch of churches would get together. And so every fall, we would go up for a couple of days and play some golf. And in the morning and evening, there would be uh, worship time and teaching time and everything. And so uh, it was just good Jesus time, good hangout time. I don't really golf, but I learned how to golf up there, and I have really good memories about that place. So there was free time sometimes. So one afternoon during free time, uh, our group of guys from our church started a Euchre tournament. And I actually didn't know how to play Euchre. I'd just never played it before. It was just not a part of my life. And so they're teaching me how to play, and there was, like, a perfectly even amount of people, which you need for Euchre. And so it worked out that if I could learn how to play, then we could actually play. And so I was playing, and I was awful. I just it was having a hard time picking up the game. No one wanted to be my partner at all. And I was the guy playing, going, like, can I do this? Because I just didn't know what I was doing and just always like can i do this if he does that can i do this and they were all getting annoyed with me and making fun of me and one one of the young guys said we love you pastor but you suck at this and everyone laughed and then that became a running joke and it was true but words right that wasn't fun and so i started to pick it up i got a little bit better and i still wasn't great but we came to our last game and all the other games going on around us had stopped and so it was just me and my partner playing against two others and so everyone had kind of gathered around. There was 15 or 16 of us. And as we were sitting there playing, uh, this is, we were down to game point. It was nine to nine. And so we were, we were almost there. Whoever won this hand was going to win the whole game. And then my team took two tricks. Their team took two tricks. So now we're down to the final, final, final. Everyone has one card left. And so whoever wins this last trick is going to win the whole game. And so everyone's gathered around. Now what I know that no one else knows is I have the trump card. I have the right bower, and it hasn't been played yet. And so I know no matter what happens next, we win. No matter what happens, it doesn't matter what, how well anyone else plays at this point, we win. It is, it is preordained by the card that I was given. It is, it is carved in stone. I can only win. I cannot lose. And so it doesn't matter if anyone else plays a really good card, I've got the best card. And so everyone knows that the trump card hasn't been played yet, but nobody knows who has it, and I get to go first. And so I was so cocky about it, because they'd all been so mean to me. And so I just sat back in my chair, I took my time, I looked at my card, I kind of went, and then I flicked it like that. And the world went slow motion for a minute. The card flew, and the trump card landed upright and went, in the table, and everyone around went, ah! grab me and they're shaking me and it was so exciting it was such a great moment i don't remember any bible we talked about that weekend at all but i remember that moment profoundly and it didn't matter what anyone else did i had the final card i had it i just i had it in my hand it was not possible to be beaten on that hand and even if death was Satan's trump card, God still had a better card. He had a better card called resurrection. No one had ever played that card in this way against him again. But it wasn't like that this this big uh, cosmic battle was going on in the tomb of like, who's going to win? Is it going to be God? Is it going to be Satan? Is it going to be light? Is it going to be darkness? It's no, Satan took his best possible weapon, which was death. His final, final, final weapon. The most powerful force on the earth that he had. And he wielded it against the Savior. For a moment, it looked like it worked, but it wasn't going to work because it was just impossible for death to keep its hold on him. It just wasn't possible. This was Satan saying, here's my biggest bag most terrifying weapon. And Jesus looking at it and saying, too small. Too small for me. Too small for the Lord of life. The Lord of life could not be contained by it. Death tried to wrap around him and bring him down, and Jesus was just too powerful, just too big, just too great. Resurrection changed the game because now death is not final. Now death is not the end. That trump card has lost its power that Satan used to play. And although we will experience grief in this life, it is not a permanent grief. It is not a permanent separation. It is life eternal that we get to participate in as Jesus has risen to life. He invites us to rise to life with him as well. And we actually get to start living out that resurrection life now. It's not just we get to heaven one day and then we're gonna experience some stuff. It's no, the Holy Spirit has come so that you can start to experience eternal life starting right now. You can know his presence now. You can know him now. You can experience him now. We don't have to wait for it. So we are not people of despair as followers of Jesus. We can't. No matter what we're going through, death has been overturned. Life is eternal for those of us who follow after him. So we are not a despairing people. We are not a hopeless people. We are not a faithless people. We are not a grumbling people. We're not a complaining people. We're not a cynical people. We are hope-filled people because Jesus is alive. There's an American theologian named Frederick Beekner, and he says, resurrection shows that the worst thing is never the final thing. Resurrection shows that the worst thing is never the final thing. Whatever we are going through, the worst thing is never the final thing. Resurrection is always the end of the story. So in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Any inheritance we get on this earth will end at some point. Either we'll spend it all or it'll disappear or we'll die and we won't get to enjoy it anymore. This inheritance is a whole other level. An inheritance is something that always comes to us as a gift, right? You don't earn your inheritance. Somebody passes away and they take what they've earned in their life and they give it to you as a gift. I've never received an inheritance yet in my life, but it is something that comes to us as a gift. We don't earn it. I mean, if you kill your parents, I guess you earn it a little bit, but... We're, we're not in favor of that. I'm not endorsing that. This may be controversial, but Meadowbrook is anti-murder, just so we're all clear on where we're at. Inheritance, like if something comes to you, your parents pass away or grandparents or whoever passes away, it comes to you. They did all the earning, right? They earned that. And it comes to you freely. It comes to you as a gift. And scripture says that Jesus has earned certain things because of the life that he lived. And because he went to the cross. And because he was obedient to God. And because he was faithful unto death. Jesus has this incredible inheritance. And the, the blessing of the, everything that we're celebrating today isn't just that we get to share in the resurrection. It's that we get to share in the fullness of the inheritance of Jesus. That every blessing that he earned through the cross and resurrection, he chooses to share that with us. Come on up, worship team. We're going to wrap up here. It always comes to us as a gift, and it's always something that is not earned by us. Romans eight seventeen says, now if we are children of God, if we have said yes to Jesus, if we have come back to the table of the Lord, if we have eternal life in him, if we are his kids, then that means we are heirs. Because right? the father's the king and kings have kids and the kids get to share in the kingdom. The king, kids get to share in the wealth of the kingdom. So if we are God's kids, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. In other words, if we persevere, if we press through. We've been talking about that a lot as we've gone through Revelation the last number of weeks. If we keep pressing on, if we are faithful to keep going. And so we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. There's a song that we sing often on Good Friday uh, called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And there's a line in there that gets me every time which says, "Why should I gain from his reward?" That's what the inherent that's what we're talking about that's inheritance why should i gain from his reward he gets eternal life he gets the glories of heaven he gets to rule and reign he shares that with me why should i gain from his reward i cannot give an answer but this i know with all my heart his wounds have paid my ransom that as if the new birth wasn't enough, as if the living hope wasn't enough, as if the resurrection wasn't enough, it's also, hey, here's some inheritance for you on top of that. Every spiritual blessing in Christ is now yours, and you get to walk in that now. The, the good news just keeps going and going and going and going. So praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth, into a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead and into an inheritance that will never perish spoil or fade. there's a book called the jesus manifesto by leonard sweet and frank viola and they say this this glorious jesus defeated death the grave the curse the entire world system sin satan and all condemnation he slew shame He conquered guilt and he shared his everlasting victory and towering triumph with you. And we celebrate that all the time, right? We need to celebrate that all the time. But it all feels just much more poignant on Resurrection Sunday as we take time to remember the fullness of not just the cross, but the resurrection and every blessing, every good thing that God has released into our lives because of what Jesus has done. And that solid, rock solid, living hope that we get to stand on because our God is living, because Jesus is alive and how that changes everything. So we're going to worship him again before we go. We're going to sing that song, Living Hope, again. Uh, The first time we sang it, maybe you were getting the hang of it, but we really wanted to be able to jump and do it again in light of the word that we've read today. So would you stand with me, please, in the room as we get ready to sing online. As you join with us, the words will be on the screen for you as well.